Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. It's a delight today to learn with uh, Rabbi Jeremy Rosen on this great topic, King David, man of war and politics, man of God, man of contradictions, based on a close reading of the book of Samuel, Sefer Shmuel. So thank you for joining us. Jeremy Rosen is a British-born rabbi, a graduate in philosophy from Cambridge University and the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem. He has smicha from the Russia Yeshivot of Mir, Ponovich, and Beryakov. He spent his working life in the rabbinate, Jewish education, and academia on four continents, and has retired to New York, where I guess as a rabbi, when you retire, you stay a rabbi. He is the rabbi of the Persian community of Manhattan and lectures at the JCC. Rabbi Rosen, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. It's uh, actually a privilege. I so admire your work, uh, your stand, you, you are quite unique. I mean, not everyone's unique, of course, but you're especially unique in this generation. So uh, first of all, I just want to explain a little bit about where I'm coming from. I confuse people with my identity, which is quite intentional. Um, I'm a rationalist uh, when it comes to ideas. I am a halachist when it comes to behavior. I'm a mystic when it comes to my relationship with the Almighty. And many people think I'm schizophrenic. And if I am, I'm happy to be so. It's a conscious choice. Um, and this informs the way I uh, present and the material that I present uh, and how I try to deal with issues. And uh, King David is in a sense, the most problematic issue that we face as Jews day by day, because three times a day, we ask God to bring back the household of David. And that is the last thing on earth, almost the last thing on earth, I can possibly think is a good idea coming from a country where you have the monarchy anyway, and so I'm not in favor of monarchy very much. And why do we make this fuss of the house of David, given that almost half of the kings of the house of David were pagan, useless incompetents? And he himself represents such a broad combination of different elements that it's very difficult to know how to make sense and what message we're supposed to derive from him. So I want to try and look uh, briefly through his career and his history and try to see what it is about him that we love and that we don't like and whether he has anything to say to us today at all. It's also interesting, of course, that David plays such an important part in Christianity, um, just not just through the Psalms, but through the fact that he also is claimed to be the, the father, the great-great-grandfather of their founder. 
So here you have a man we know as a fighter, as a lover, as a musician, as a composer, um, as a terrible dad, uh, as well as an adulterer and everything else like that. And we have to find a way also of reconciling the way the Talmud looks at David and the way the Torah of the Tanakh itself looks at David. There are similar, of course, similarities between David and his predecessor, King Saul. Um, they are both initially not accepted and have to prove themselves. They are both anointed. They both spend time uh, as prophets or having some sort of ecstatic experience. And they both have great difficulty with their children. Uh, so... The issue, of course, is whether David models himself in some way on King Saul. But the only area I can think of as consciously modeling him is on this issue of the sanctity, so to speak, of the role of the king. And he is very, very protective of King Saul's status and position um, as he later tries to be of his own. If you remember, there are two different versions in the Bible as to how Saul was killed and by whom. And uh, when the young Amalekite comes to King David expecting to be rewarded for, as he claimed, killing Saul, King David ends up killing him because he says, how dare you touch the majesty of Saul? And he himself had these opportunities to attack Saul physically uh, when he was being pursued and he never did and held himself back. The are, there are indeed two versions of the story of how Saul met King David. David, When David was already anointed, it seems, he had been introduced to him as a great musician to come and play for him. But then later on, when the Battle of Goliath is on, he asks, who is this guy? So this already indicates that the text itself combines different narratives and weaves them in together, which I think is rather typical of the biblical approach of um, not trying to see things from just one angle and, and uh, uh, actually encouraging the different approaches and combining them to create a gestalt view of characters and history. So um, the other thing we see during this period of David in relationship to Saul is the way that on the one hand, he is charismatic and attracts people. He attracts Jonathan very much. He, he is loved by uh, Michal. And to be honest, he uses them. He uses them to escape in the case of running away, uh, thanks to Michal protecting him, he ends up running away to the prophets of, uh, to the, uh, the priests of Nov, where he lies to them and tells them that he is uh, on a mission from Saul, which gives them permission, so to speak, to hand him over sword, food, and other things. And as you know, the tragic end is that they are massacred, except for the one son who manages to escape, forgives David, and becomes his priest and brings the ephod with him. So you've got that 
Then you've got the way he goes over to Achish, the king of the Philistines, and the brilliant way in which he pretends to be mad so that Achish won't uh, kill him because he's part of the enemy camp. Um, so this already indicates something of the dynamism of him and the fact that he attracts all these other people to join him in his isolation or in his role as a fugitive. Um, but after Saul's death and the beautiful poetic mourning um, of Saul and Jonathan together, he becomes king in a limited sort of way. And in this limited sort of way, he is king only of Judah and Benjamin, only of these two tribes, and his throne is in Hebron. Meanwhile, Saul's son uh, carries on to function with the majority of the other tribes. So he faces a very difficult situation, and in this difficult situation, he has to play the diplomat. He goes out of his way to say how sorry he is for the loss of Saul. He doesn't rejoice in any way at his demise. He uh, recognizes the continuation of his dynasty in the north while he is king in the south and surrounds himself with his family and his uh, uh, the influential people, which on the one hand, is natural. On the other hand, he is beholden to them. And as we're going to see in his relationship with his uncle Yoav, he lets Yoav get away with a lot of stuff that normally he wouldn't do. So after the civil war is ended, because Avner is insulted by um, uh, his the descendant of Saul, who he um, um, uh, felt treated him, took advantage of him, and goes and negotiates with David in order to uh, merge the two kingdoms. Um, he doesn't do anything about killing Mephibosheth, but he does want to find a job for himself. Unfortunately, there has been bad blood between Avner, who supported Saul, and Yoav, who is on David's side. After the negotiations, Yoav goes and kills Avner. And once again, David is very careful to publicly say, I had nothing to do with this. I was not involved with this. This was by somebody acting on his own initiative. And so he's very conscious of not wanting to cause a trouble. Um, so after this, the one thing that um, um, David does is something that I find very, very painful to read. Um, if you remember, after he ran away, um, uh, King Saul handed over his wife Michal to somebody else in his court, a man called Palti ben Laish. And as soon as David has control over the totality of the kingdom, he demands to have Michal sent back to him. He's got plenty of otherwise, meanwhile, but he does. And the Talmud and the Torah records that as Michal is being taken back, poor Palti bin Laish walks behind her weeping tears at the loss of this person. Um, and uh, I find that so moving 
Uh, and it's interesting that the theme of this is going to come back when we talk about the situation with Batsheva. Um, so um, Ishboshet is assassinated. I mentioned Mephibosheth, I meant Ishboshet, that's somebody else to come up, um, uh, is assassinated by two guys called Rechev and Bana, uh, who think that David would be happy if they were to kill him off. And once again, David says, no, you've, you've killed an anointed king or one of the royal family. I can't accept this. And he puts them to death. So he does have this violent side, which we find difficult to deal with. But remember, they were living in a time which is very reminiscent of Mexican gang drug lords, little groups of people always fighting each other and scared that if they don't let up on showing how strong they are, people are going to take advantage of them. You know, I was just reading a, a history of the Ottoman Empire in which until the 17th century, when one of the royal family was appointed king, he immediately killed all his brothers so that they wouldn't challenge his position. Well, that's, you know, 17, uh, 1,700 years after King David. So in that sense, we can excuse certain things, I think, that David is going to do in the course of his life. But anyway, he, remember, he has eight wives. So why he needed Michal back, I don't know. But anyway, he was, and he has all these children. Uh, he conquers Jerusalem and turns that into his center. And at the same time, he wants to try and show what a religious leader he is. And so whether we would call this cultural or religious, being a religious example matters to him. And if we assume he was singing religious songs in his youth, then he's always been a religious kid in one way, even though sometimes he behaves in other ways. He comes to Jerusalem, brings the ark in, and we see him dancing and having a whale of a time. And we see Michal, of course, very unhappy about him behaving in an undignified way, which to my mind is positive in one sense that he's prepared to put his religious experience and ecstasy above the formality and rigidity of his position. On the other hand, we also see that in war, he is not uh, um, averse uh, to uh, killing people. And even there is one incident in the case of the Moabites of what we might call torture. Uh, interesting, given that he's descended from a Moabite woman, which is relevant to Ruth, of course. Uh, but he does have this very, very brutish side. Um, for example, at another occasion, he, when he was in Achish, going back at the time to Achish of Gat, uh, he was quite happy to uh, go killing Philistines who were members of his tribe and telling Gat, that, uh, telling Achish that the booty really came from the Jews instead. So there is that other side to him that keeps on coming out all the time. Um, and the other aspect of Saul, of, of, sorry, of uh, King David uh, that we need to deal with is this whole issue of how he treats Bathsheba. Um, he, uh, as you know, sees her, uh, has uh, sex with her, 
um, and then sends her back home as if that was the end of the story. But then she gets pregnant, tells him, of course, that she is going to have a baby, and he doesn't know what to do. So his initial reaction is to call back her husband, Uriah the Hittite, from the front and say, go back and spend the night with your wife, hoping that that will solve the problem. Of course, he's obviously heard something. He doesn't want to go and spend time with her. And as a result, uh, David says, well, the only thing I've got to do is kill him. So he sends him back to the front to Yoav with a message, put him in the front line and make sure he gets killed. Yoav, to his credit, doesn't like to do this, but in the end, out of loyalty to the king, he does. Poor Uriah dies. And at that moment, in comes uh, David comes in and says to Bathsheba, okay, you can come to the palace and be my wife. And it transpires that she becomes a very good wife, and in many respects, she's his top wife. Uh, and it's her son Solomon who's going to be the successor. And this is where uh, Natan, the prophet, comes in, intervenes in this way that we cannot imagine anybody behaving this way with a Putin in our day. And basically, he comes in with this lovely story, the story of this poor little shepherd who's only got one sheep who he loves, and then there's the, the nearby guy who's a very wealthy man with all his sheep and his cattle and everything else like that. A visitor comes round, and he goes and he takes the sheep of a poor little guy and kills that for the meal. And when Nathan tells David this, David says, disgusting, this is terrible, that guy should be put to death. And then Nathan says, you're the guy, because you could have had any woman. Why did you have to go and take Bathsheba? Um, to his credit, David accepts the rebuke. We all make mistakes. He made this dramatic mistake, which the Torah itself says explicitly he made a mistake. Because the fact that later on, the rabbis during the Talmudic era are living in a different world. They're living in a world in which Christianity pushes the idea of the saint, of the saintly person, of the perfect person, whereas the Jewish tradition, biblically at any rate, was we all make mistakes and we're human and we have to do our best and nobody is perfect. And they recast King David in this new role as a kind of a rabbinic scholar who sits at the feet of Achitophel and studies Gemara and studies how to sit on a bet din and make all the rabbinic decisions as accurate as they can be. And he didn't sin, and he didn't sin because in his days there was the idea of giving a bill of divorce in advance before you send people to war. So anyway, she was therefore, in a sense, not married at that moment. And clearly flying absolutely in the face of the text as it is, and saying, that David Melech never made a sin, says so, and everybody ignores the fact that the Gemara also says he did sin, because he said he did. But, you know, rabbis are very selective, always have been. That's the strength and the weakness of the Midrash. You can find anything you want to in, find in it to support your position. So this, again, shows the importance of religion in his life, the importance of Nathan. He's prepared to accept this rebuke as it comes through to him. He's prepared to deal with it. And I consider this to be a very important element in the narrative. The next important narrative issue is the issue of Avshalom and the issue of Absalom's being thoroughly spoiled and uh, um, uh, not being, it seems, disciplined in any way. 
The lead up to this is the famous story of the rape of Tamar, um, in which um, uh, she is raped by her brother Amnon. Amnon, after having raped her, uh, unlike, if you like, Shechem in the case of Dina, uh, feels for her. Uh, he feels revolt, uh, uh, revolted by the whole situation and throws her out. Avshalom, her brother, takes her in. They don't seem to say anything to David. Uh, King David does not seem to intervene. It looks as though his children are thoroughly spoiled. It reminds me a little bit of Jacob always remaining silent, both in the case of uh, uh, Shechem and in the case of uh, Reuven. Um, so this idea of, if you like, being silent and not acting, to my mind, shows a defect in his parenting. And it's left in the end to Avshalom to find a way of um, uh, killing um, uh, Amnon uh, without David's approval. And again, David's response is a passive one. If that's what's happened, that's what happened. And the reward, of course, of this is that Avshalom eventually rebels against him. And not only rebels against him, but actually sends his army to try and kill him. And uh, this together with the fact that Amnon doesn't seem to care very much about doing the right thing, and allied to the fact that the other son, Adoniah, is also going to take over the reins of power, at least to try to, shows that within his family, there is a whole series of examples of his not having proper control, even though, to be fair, he does at the same time have a very close re uh, uh, relationship with a lot of his uh, friends and advisors who are prepared to stand by him. Um, there are several other examples, I think, of his that are very negative, not least of, it, least of which is how he deals with a famine that is supposed to have come about as a result of the mistreatment of the Gibeonites uh, by Saul. And that is to say that the uh, Gibeonites were a tribe that came and to Joshua, claiming they came from a long way away and disguising themselves, whereas really they were locals. Uh, when Joshua discovered them, uh, and he made a treaty with them, uh, but when he discovered they were really from the local people, uh, he found himself in a difficult position, but they were part of the Jewish community or became adopted, even though in a lower plebeian rank. And uh, the uh, oracle told David that the famine was because of how Saul had treated the Gibeonites. And the result was that uh, uh, David chose to find the remnants of the Saul dynasty and to kill them, murder them, uh, in order to remove the plague, which, to my mind, is uh, uh, another serious blot on his career. Um, another blot on his career is that in the case of one of the sons, <coughs> Mephibosheth of Saul, he had early on tried to reinstate him and give him some position in his home, uh, in, in the palace, to show that he didn't hold grudges. 
Um, and he handed over property back to him and appointed um, one of his court to, uh, um, if you like, uh, be his manager, the manager of his estate. And when uh, um, uh, King uh, David was running away from Avshalom, uh, uh, the... Um, the question was, why didn't Mephibosheth come to support David as he was running away? And Ziva, his manager, uh, came along and told David, look, the reason is he's not on your side. Um, and uh, David says, okay, then you can take over his whole estate. Later on, Ziva comes round and says to him, uh, you really didn't give me a chance to explain myself. It wasn't because I was not loyal to you. It was for other reasons, also to do with the fact that I'm a cripple, I can't get around and all these sort of things. Okay, so David, so we'll divide your estate 50-50. And you can see that the rabbis didn't approve of that because in the Midrash they say that that is why his own kingdom was split into two, half to one and half to the other in due course. But this was unfair. On the one hand, he wanted to support the house of David. On the other hand, um, of Saul, on the other hand, he gave in and he listened, if you like, to Lashon Hara. Uh, the um, other side of the David's issue is this whole question of wanting to build a temple and being told that he can't build a temple because he is a man of war and therefore it's going to be left to his son Saul in order to, uh, uh, his son Solomon rather, in order to build the temple uh, when uh, there are times of, of peace. The final years of David uh, are also troubled. He is old and he is weak and he's cold and they managed to get Avishag, this beautiful woman, to come and lie on him and keep him warm. And uh, uh, the Midrash is very interested in this idea that he did that um, and it says very clearly that he didn't have intercourse with her. And yet the Midrash uh, says that Avishag teased him and said, ah, oh, you're too old and past it. And he called in Batsheva and proved to her that he was not past it. So this is trying to show what a disciplined, religiously concerned man he is as he got older, despite all the problems. Interestingly enough, when after this event, um, Adoniah, his son, or wants to try and marry Avishag, this is the grounds for Solomon to get rid of the brother who still represents a challenge. But on his deathbed, David then wants to settle scores that he couldn't settle. Throughout his life, Yoav, his general, acted against him as well as much too for him. He killed people when he shouldn't have done. He was the hitman, and David could not do anything about it because he was too powerful. And so he says then on his deathbed to Solomon, I want you to take care of this guy. I also want you to take care of a guy called Shimi, uh, uh, Shimi who cursed him 
on his, uh, as he was going down, he was a supporter of King Saul. As David was running away from Jerusalem when Avshalom was trying to pursue him, he cursed him all the way down. And at the end came back and apologized when David was victorious. And again, David did not take action against him in his lifetime, but he did give instructions to his son that uh, if ever uh, he got out of line, he should deal with him in due course. And he also asked him to reward the people he wanted to reward. But the deathbed speech of David shows that there is still a vindictive element to him. So having gone through all these elements, uh, how are we supposed to to look at him. It seems clear that from a political point of view, he did succeed in uniting the country, in uniting the tribes, in building it up. And there's a big question indeed of how much he did build up and how strong uh, Jerusalem or Judea was, or indeed the 10 tribes. And if you follow modern archeology, span you will see that particularly people like Professor Finkelstein and others say that Judea was a really small kingdom and the Northern tribes were not so big. And it's true that Solomon managed to use, blend them together and spread out, but the extent of how far he spread out was very, very uh, debatable. And in fact, of the two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom of the Ten was far more powerful, far more effective than the smaller kingdom of Judea in the South. And so Judea really, in a sense, it's like history. The history is written by the victors because the 10 northern tribes were all taken off into captivity by the Assyrians and then scattered. Judea was left. And so Judea controlled the narrative. And that's why the house of David was so important. It's why, because when the Babylonian community, which was made up primarily of the Judeans who in several exiles went to Babylon and managed to preserve and build up the community and they became the Judeans, the Jews, that they controlled the narrative. For all these reasons, the idea of returning back to the house of David was another way of saying returning back to our independence Although, interestingly enough, the 10 northern tribes kept the idea going of a king of the house of Joseph, Mashiach ben Yosef, as well as the king of Judea. But nevertheless, it was they who controlled the narrative and why David and returning the house of David became so important as, uh, if you like, um, uh, a way of keeping the past alive, nostalgia in the same way that I think the emphasis on rebuilding the temple was an example of nostalgia defying the facts. Uh, and uh, when we pray both for the temple and for David, I don't think necessarily, and certainly I don't personally think I'm taking this literally as something I want to see, but as rather an indication that we shouldn't forget our past as we go forward into the future, so that it is this combination of respecting the past while looking forward to a better world in the future that enables us to have the best of both worlds. So um, I think that you can make out a case to say that nostalgically, David is the ideal. In other words, he is somebody who has given us 
these expressions of great spirituality. For all that King Solomon wrote or was attributed to Solomon, it was in terms of wisdom, but not in terms of spirituality. The Psalms, however, of course, we know not all of them were written by David, but some of them may well have been, and it is associated to him. This makes him a symbol of spiritual ecstasy and devotion, uh, the existential aspect of Judaism through song and through poetry to balance the constitutional side of Judaism through halacha. Secondly, he's seen as somebody who is prepared to fight, who has the guts to stand up, who will use the nuclear deterrent if he really has to. He is prepared to do things which he thinks are necessary to preserve his kingdom, but at the same time puts peace first. He tries to reconcile. He wants to go down the path of peace before he turns to violence. He respects other people. He respects the position. He has a libido, but yes, most kings do have libidos. And he had all these wives and all these children. And as a father, I think he failed. And I put that as being one of the, the biggest strikes against him. But nevertheless, he was a consummate politician, knowing who to fight on and deal with and who not, when to delay, when to take the right decision short term as opposed to the right decision long term, and dealing with the different tribes around, making peace when he can, negotiating when he can, and avoiding conflict when it's best possible. So we see his strengths and his weaknesses, these personal choices that he has to make that are sometimes bad and sometimes good. And at the same time, loyalty, which to my mind is a very important factor. So although you can make out a case against him, as with everybody, you can make a case for the good and for the bad, but I like the idea that our hero is a hero who is, in a sense, representative of the everyman, of us all. We all try our best. We all make mistakes. We all do terrible things sometimes, or some more than others. We try to combine a religious life with a secular political life. We try to have it all. And I think that is another way of describing King David. So I don't know if anybody wants to take me up on Beautiful. anything or discuss anything. Beautiful, Rabbi Rosen. Wow, wow. That such a command of, of the Sefer and of this historical figure. And it's so compelling the way you presented his humanity alongside his, um, his being a model. Um, and so, friends, yes, we do want to open it up for your questions for Rabbi Rosen on, um, on these related issues. I, I know I have many, but I'll, I'll let someone else jump in first. Hi, Lauren, go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you, that was very interesting. What I found when I studied David Hamelach at the time, you're right, he comes off very problematic, at least he does do tshuva. Um, but the thing is that, you know, he was improvement over Saul, but the kings that came after him were an absolute disaster. I mean, Solomon brought in idolatry through his wives, and I think the more you think of what came after him, the better David looks because it was a mess after that. You, safer Lachim is just depressing. 
Yes, the majority of his descendants were pagans or encouraged paganism yeah. who didn't get rid of it. There were like Yehoshaphat and, of course, uh, Yoshiyahu and, and uh, Hezkiah. There were some good ones. But yes, that's why I say the dynasty was no great dynasty. So we talk about Malchut Beit David. You're talking about the dynasty of David. Well, a lot of them were not very good. Amazing. Thank you. Who else wants to jump in here? Okay, I guess I could. Great, great, please. How do you pronounce okay. your first name? Aglaia. Thank you, Aglaia, thank you. Okay, so um, one of the things that I'm kind of um, just drawing this out there, curious about those, that um, we look at figures like David and, you know, good and, you know, good and bad qualities and everything, though. Um, I guess I'm going to have trouble, like, articulating this, though, but future generations always look at past generations and they see all good or all bad. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I try to tell people as a history teacher is no, it's, you know, future generations need to not look from that angle, look from a forgiving angle instead. So I don't know if um, David, um, if we would consider David as a figure that, you know, you look from, at him from the good and bad aspects and then you just say, okay, well, it's, future generations we forgive the past and everything so i don't know if that i don't know if i articulated well but would david you know in your opinion just fit into that sort of dynamic yeah you you make an excellent point i mean if you look back at your history uh, hardly anybody is any good or <laughs> well, we've all got a bad side maybe not uh, i won't get personal about who's an example of a bad bad ruler and who's an example of a good ruler. But yes, and that's why I, I like this idea. I find this very comforting and I agree with you. There's no such thing as history. There are just historians. And uh, over time, history changes as we're seeing before our eyes at the moment. And I would rather, and this is, if you like, to get current, where I, I disagree with a lot of the current narrative. I don't believe in getting rid of the past. I believe in examining the past and saying, this was terrible. Uh, but at the same time, many people in the past who did terrible things also did good things. And we need to recognize those. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Aglaia. Thank you, Robert Rosen. Yeah. Hi, David Lieberman. You know, the other thing we tend to do is we judge people based on from the past based on our current standards of, uh, of behavior uh, in the context of our current sense of ethics and our current history. And I wonder if you could comment, uh, it's hard to do, but can, we, can you help put us back in the context of human behavior <laughs> back at that time and uh, make some, some comments about how unusual or not King David's behavior was mm. uh, viewing him, you know, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah, no, I, I, that's an excellent point. I mean, if you uh, bear in mind how we are still killing thousands of people every day around this world. I mean, leaving aside wars for the moment, you know how many people, children disappear in this country? How many people are killed by gangs? How, forgetting about how many people are, are starving, just talking about violence, how many women are raped, how many issues on every single issue? 
We think how barbaric it was then, and in some respects, of course, it was. If you think of all the invading uh, invasions that took place time after time, uh, whether we go through uh, history of the ancient world, of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, of the Persians, and the Greeks, and the Romans, and then what the Christians did, and burning people at the stake, and the, uh, the constant warfare, the constant... Uh, we don't go into anti-Semitism. You go through a list of how many... Jews were killed in the course of European history. Um, uh, but the, the fact is that in any area, including, for example, the issue of women, I mean, women didn't get a vote in Switzerland until 1977, for goodness sake. So, of course, women were treated back in those days differently. The amazing thing is that you had some women like Deborah who get to the top. And my favorite is Sion, who was the uh, the queen of the, the, the best of the Maccabean uh, monarchs, who was able to uh, repair the country after King Yanai had uh, sort of caused internal conflict, external conflict total corruption and decadence. She did an absolutely brilliant job. She was married to Aristobulus who murdered his brothers. Uh, and this is only going back 2000 years ago, not 3000 years ago. She, she married Aristobulus who killed his brothers. He died. Then she married Yanai, who was also a murderer so-and-so. And then when he died, she took over. And for 12 years, she did a brilliant job. She made just one mistake. She was a Yiddish mama. She had two terrible sons, Aristobulus II and John Hyrcanus II, who, when she handed over, ruined the country so badly the Romans had to step in. But nevertheless, she was accepted as a queen. And although Maimonides comes along a thousand years later, living under Islam, and says, oh, no, you can't have women in charge, the fact is that they were at different times. So in every area you could look. We have advanced, we've changed, but at the same time, fundamentally, I believe humans are the same. We're not born with automatic um, uh, knowing how to manage without diapers. We all start shitting and screaming and making a noise. And therefore, I'm not certain that we have evolved. Every generation starts from scratch. We have more technology. We have, Just as we had do more damage, we can do more good. Look at all the health that we've done, all the number of plagues we managed to do with, all the money that's going in. There's another side. But fundamentally, a human is a human. And that's why so many humans around us at this moment are pedophiles, are betraying every value that we care about. So you're absolutely right. We have to use the past as a guide, but see the past as in its context. Thank you, Rabbi Rosen. We have Thea, then we have Michael. Hey, Rabbis, thank you both for this wonderful, wonderful lesson. Um, my question, I know this is a talk about David, but adjacent to that is Saul. And David's relationship with Saul, he loves him in his youth, his playing the liar soothes him, and then Saul hates him, and then Saul doesn't hate him, and then Saul hates him. And it's be, I wonder if you think it's beyond just being threatened. I mean, Saul's daughter loves him, Saul's son loves him, and do they not love their father? I mean, what is what do you see as the relationship um, between Saul and David and how that how that molds the narrative of these two kings. It's interesting because while you were talking, it struck me that I've been reading a lot least recently about the youngest child. And I've seen this among some of my grandchildren. 
that the youngest child seems to be the most uh, well, the, um, uh, anti-establishment, uh, um, uh, uh, individualist, fighting for his place in the family hierarchy. And remember, David had all these big older brothers, um, but he wants to show that nobody believes him. They think he's a wimp or a, a, a weakling, and he has to prove something. So I know he has to go on proving stuff. And as you say, he had to suffer from being hounded and pursued and driven through everywhere. Um, the, uh, the, the uh, Officially, officially, the crucial issue between the two of them was that Saul was uh, not prepared to accept the word of God, although I think it's very unfair and I think he gets very, very, very bad um, deal in, in the Bible, but officially that's it. The other big thing is he went to the Witch of Endor as opposed to going to the, the Jewish uh, oracles, which were still were there, technically speaking, to go to. Um, but it was the fact that David accepted the authority of God, did what he was told to do by Nathan, didn't try to argue or rebel against it. It was this God relationship that I think over or outweighed the failings of his human relationship, which in a sense were a natural growth out of who he was, as you said, and how he grew up and the challenges he had to face. Thank you. Great, okay, great, Michael, thank you. Uh, and what you said may relate to my question, but we're saying evaluating David and, 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 and what sort of king is contributing to Judaism, I can see, you can see both sides. But it seems to me that Judaism approaches David a much higher order, almost to the level of Moses, and saying the Messiah will come from David's line, that David is the core of Judaism. And does that not require us to evaluate him on a much higher level than simply that his good deeds um, outpaces bad deeds. What is the reason he has become the central focus almost of the future of Judaism over the millennia? Excellent question, and I think the answer is very simple. The whole idea of a Mashiach is something that emerges in Babylon. Up until that point, there was no such concept other than the high priest being anointed, uh, the, uh, you know, being anointed, and a king was only anointed when there was a break in a dynasty. So there was a break in the dynasty. So Solomon was anointed because there was a break in the dynasty before. Um, only one of the northern kings was anointed, and that was Yehu. And again, because there was a break in the dynasty. And so the idea of, the, of, of coming back, the Mashiach, meaning coming back to rebuild something, was a Babylonian concept. And therefore, it became the concept of the diaspora. And then with the rise of Christianity, again, you have this idea of the Messiah in the figure or the persona, however you want to say it, of Jesus, in which case the Jews have to present a counter-argument, and so they build up this counter-argument of David, which is ironically why Christianity had to say Jesus was descended from David, which is about as improbable as saying I'm descended from David, but nevertheless, the issue is really, in my, to my mind, the idea that the Mashiach is a response to the diaspora is a response to suffering and exile, and that would explain why he was chosen to represent this by the people who were suffering in exile. Wow, uh, that, that, uh, amazing. I, I actually got in trouble once for saying something similar to what you just said, so I hope you don't get in trouble, but you're retired, so it's <laughs> I've okay. been getting in trouble the whole of my life. <laughs> I'm proud of it. You're retired, it's okay. Um, so I, so I have, I have um, 
you know, in regards to Tehillim, I have an academic question and a spiritual question. The academic question is, you had said uh, not all of it is written by him. Some may be. Um, I wonder, like, do we know anything historically about his role as poet and author, um, anything definitively or not? And, and um, do we think that he was writing something that he intended to be useful for others or merely was expressing himself in a way he wanted to record as his own kind of personal poetry, so to speak? So uh, th that's my academic question. My spiritual question is, you, recur you, you referred to Tehillim as expressions of great spirituality, which very much resonates for me. And I wonder, how, do, how might you advise that we dive into Hillam? How might you advise that we pray the Psalms? Like, when we pick up a Psalm as a unique form of prayer, what sort of kavanah or intentionality might, might you offer that we bring to this engagement with this text? Wow, two, two atomic bomb questions right at the end. I mean, first of all, we cannot know who wrote what. We cannot know. Even the Torah, we cannot know. All we know from the Torah is that Moses comes down the mountain with two tablets of stone, not with an ox cart that had the whole of the scrolls of the Torah written on it and was written down over time during the course of that generation or later or later. We cannot know. And therefore, our reaction to the script, to my mind, has to be, these are the documents that have come down to us that are the fundamental documents of our tradition and we respect them as if God or whoever it is is communicating them to us. And indeed, the Gemara itself, if you look in, in Bhava Bhatra, argues about who wrote the different books and uh, who wrote the different psalms. And certainly he didn't write the psalms by the waters of Babylon where he sat and wept. So there's no question that he didn't. And many of the psalms we know from the Dead Sea sects, there were many more psalms. That there was a, the, the, the priests were producing, or Levites were producing psalms all the time. It was all like, like I know, the current pop song in those days, you know, a new song every week or every day, whatever it was. And so part of what they were doing, were doing this, if you like, within the context of the temple to create an atmosphere for the masses, because the masses are coming. You don't have prayer as we have it at that stage. You come to the temple and it's an experience. It's a visual experience with fancy clothes, with all the sacrificial system, moving through chambers and chambers, and you've got music and you've got sounds and you've got songs that people are coming through almost like a museum all day long and the songs are going all day long there. And these were, if you like, I would suggest entertainment, but they are entertainment that have a theme that you, us, and God. We're all part of one unity and we find different ways of speaking to each other and connecting to each other. And so whereas, like nowadays, some people like prose, some people like music, I think it was intentional to create this uh, multi-phenomenon uh, uh, experience in the temple of which Psalms play the part first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. What their motives were, I don't know, but they are at any rate examples of how people are trying to deal with their relationship with God. Now, I see prayer as we have it as functioning on two very different levels. To quote Rambam, prayer mida or writer of the Torah is totally flexible, totally personal, anytime, anywhere, any place. You can say whatever you like in any language. And to my mind, that is the core of prayer. What we now have is the services. 
Europeans were brought in by and large, either as Rambam says, when people didn't know how to pray, so they need a menu, or alternatively to replace the community of the temple. Because when the temple goes, what else is there for Jews to do to get them together in any religious sense? And that's where prayer within the synagogue emerges. And so they create this structure, which is a combination of what we call prayer, study, reading from the Torah is a study part. And there you have the declaration, which is Shema. Kriyat Shema is not saying as Tefillah. Tefillah is only the Amidah. You have these different elements which are designed as a menu. And I believe that we have as individuals to choose our personal methods of communication with God, whether they're through song or whether they're through poetry or whether they're through meditation. And we use the tools that have been given to us, but we shouldn't be confined by those tools. On the other hand, I am a great believer in maintaining tradition. And so I think we should maintain the tradition of services. Although all the things that were added on in medieval times were added on for various other reasons. One of them, of course, was the synagogue was the only half-decent building in the primitive society when people lived in poverty and in shacks. So you wanted to spend as much time in the synagogue as you possibly could. Secondly, they were always worried about sort of attacks from the outside. So for this reason, from the reason that they had no other form of entertainment, they had no distractions in the way we have distractions nowadays. The services got bigger and bigger and longer and longer and more and more problematic for anybody, even for the most religious, which is why you go to the most religious places, you find most people aren't paying attention for most of the services anyway. So for all those reasons, I believe we have to try. And as teachers, we have to show it is possible to make your choices. It's possible not to do everything and you can find and uh, 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 what works for you and not assume that one uh, uh, pattern has to work for absolutely everybody. Wonderful. Wow. Who else would like to jump in here? We have about five minutes left. My avalanche of words has, uh, has silenced a lot of you. So anyway, thank you for listening. Okay, I, 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 I have, a, I have a, a strange question. You put down the, um, uh, you put down the institution of monarchy. Yes. And, and um, it, 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 this, this may feel obvious to us, but I think your articula articulation may be helpful given politics in the 21st century. Why, um, why should we be so sure that democracy is better than the best form of, of, my, of monarchy? Well, first of all, um, best is always relative. Secondly, I believe in, in merit. And I believe that is why the priesthood more or less vanished, thank goodness. The hereditary monarchy vanished, thank goodness. And you had instead the idea of rabbinic uh, meritocracy. Of course, it was uh, very often an oligarchy with uh, uh, choosing their own favorites to be in the position on the Sanhedrin, but they had to have some knowledge for it. In other words, the idea that automatic birth grants you a certain right just offends everything I believe in. I believe in we should 
have. Now, what method works best in this, that is an issue. I also think it's quite intentional that the Torah gives us these conflicting models of governance. It gives us the idea of a Mo Moses character. It gives us the idea of a Shofet. It gives us the idea of a Shoter. It gives us the idea of the Kohen. It gives us the idea, reluctantly, of the Melech. And by giving these different models of leadership, and the Shofet, and the Shofet, I mentioned that, and, and giving us these different models of leadership, I think it's saying this, that whereas you must be committed to the Torah and the Constitution for moral and religious issues, when it comes to governance, you can use or even borrow from the non-Jewish world any model that you think works better. That's why it says, if you say, I want to have a king to be like the other nations, but you've been telling us not to be like the other nations throughout the Torah all the time. So why are you saying you can be? In that area, so to speak, it is. And so I don't think there's a perfect system. In the end, it's a question of every system is imperfect. America's a bloody mess. Tell me anywhere else that's not a bloody mess. And everywhere you look, it's a mess. Would you rather be under Putin? Would you rather be under, uh, uh, under Xi? Who would you rather be under? I don't know what the best system is. In theory, I am an anarchist. I think all politicians are liars, dishonest, out for themselves, unreliable, and ought to be strapped. But what are we going to put in their place? Just another one. So meanwhile, we stagger forward doing our best. And I still think for all its failings, this mess is the mess I'm happy to be living in at this moment. Amazing, amazing. Rabbi Rosen, this was such a delight um, to learn with you today. Thank you so much for sharing this passionate and wise Torah with us. Uh, we hope to learn with you again sometime soon. And um, Lauren, I'm sorry, we're not, you're not allowed to come to VBM and convert Americans to Canadians. That we're, we're, we don't allow proselytizing here. We're a non-proselytizing institution, but thank you anyways. I'm, I'm, also, I'm also Canadian. Uh, and Rabbi Rosen, you didn't include Britain's problems in your list of countries, so... It's terrible! It's awesome. On every level. Thank you, Rabbi Rosen. Have a great day. Thank you all for your pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Julie. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, sir. Shabbat shalom. Oh, Pam, this is Pam's last time um, being on a, on, a, on a VBM Zoom as, as an employee of, of VBM. So join as participant each week now uh, going forward. So thank you for, for joining us. Thank you, Pam. Thank you all, especially to all my regulars and the board members and everyone who's here. Um, I will definitely try to attend when I can, but thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.